Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike, and this episode is with Dim Jones. Dim chats about flying the RAF Lightning, Phantom, and Jaguar. But the main focus of the interview is his US Air Force exchange tour, flying the F-16 Fighting Falcon. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Enjoy. So Dim, when did you uh, first become interested in aviation? Well, my father was in the Air Force and really never thought of anything else. So what year did you join the RAF? Um, 66, March 66, I went to uh, Cranwell mm-hmm. uh, and was there till uh, 68. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us some of the aircraft you flew? What, at uh, yeah, during training? Yeah. Uh, elementary flying training then, uh, as such, didn't exist. Um, we went straight to basic training on the Jet Provost. Some people had had uh, some experience on flying scholarships. I had a, a private pilot's licence through the RAF. Uh, other people had flown a bit on chipmunks, but essentially we all started off on the JP3 and 4. Yeah. You also flew the NAT. Could you tell us what the, this was like to fly? A uh, rocket-powered roller skate, really. <laughs> um, I think we all sat outside the ground school on the first day at Valley and looked at these things buzzing around the circuit and thought, there is no way we can fly at that speed. <laughs> um, but it was a wonderful aeroplane. Um, very small, as you know. Uh, strap it on rather than climb into it. Um, but it was the first aeroplane, really, that had fast jet performance that mm-hmm. we'd flown. So how long did you spend on the NAT? About six months on the course, yeah. And then you went on to the Hunter. Could you tell us how this happened? Um, at the time, um, there was a, a backlog in the flying training system because... Um, all of the new aeroplanes coming into the front line, uh, the Buccaneer, Phantom, Harrier, um, were reckoned to be a, a bit advanced to fly straight from the NAT. So uh, the good idea was to put everybody through a Hunter course. Uh, and of course, there was only one Hunter ACU. And so there was a, a great blockage in the system. Um, I went off for a year uh, most of which I spent as a platoon commander in an Army uh, Scottish Infantry Battalion um, and then came back for a bit of refresher flying after about a year off and uh, then down to Chivener for the Hunter. So what was a Hunter like to fly? Very nice. I mean, it was a wonderful aeroplane, a sort of modern equivalent of the Spitfire. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just a joy to fly, really. Mm-hmm. And how long did you spend on the Hunter? Uh, the course was about four months, I think, about 50 hours. Uh, very much for the first time, you used the basics like instrument flying, navigation and what have you to to do a job, uh, really. It was the first applied flying we'd really done and it was concentrating on uh, weaponry and specifically air-to-air because the course we did was tailored to uh, people going to the Lightning. So you went, then went on to the Lightning. <coughs> Could you tell us your first thoughts of the jet? Uh, big, powerful, uh, frightening, um, but very got, soon got used to it. It was a lovely aeroplane. Yeah. So how much ground training did you need before you even got in the, the seat of one? Uh, on the Lightning, the um, quite a, uh, a, uh, an extended um, technical ground school, a lot of simulator flying, um, and so you felt you knew the aeroplane quite well by the time you actually climbed into it. Can you remember your first reheat takeoff? Vaguely, I think I left my brains on the end of the runway when I started and picked them up again on the way back. <laughs> it was, um, yes. Pretty good, yeah. Attention getting. <laughs> so what squadrons were you based with on the Lightning? 29 first um, on the F3 at Waddisham. Uh, 
and then uh, 92 with the F2A uh, at Goodisloe. Mm-hmm. So what was the role of the Lightning at this time? In the UK at 29, um, it was really point defence. It was a very... The, the F3 had the big engines and the uh, small vent- ventral tank, uh, very much the, uh, the, the racing car, mm-hmm. a sports model, um, and very short range. Mm-hmm. Uh, standard sortie was about 50 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, and most of that was transiting out to the North Sea, and it was really air defence of the UK. Yeah. The um, Germany... Uh, was defence of the central region. Um, we did some medium-level stuff, but a lot of it was, was low-level, mm-hmm. so quite different role. Was the Lightning suited for this role? Um, as suited as anything else. It, mm-hmm. it lacked fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it lacked a really good radar, uh, and it lacked missiles. Mm-hmm. We only carried two missiles, uh, and on the F-2A, those were rear hemisphere only missiles, mm-hmm. uh, fire streak. Mm-hmm. Um, the F3 carried a red top, which had a very limited head-on capability against supersonic targets. Yeah, but it was manoeuvrable. It could stand up for itself in a fight. Mm-hmm. So, how many hours did you get on lightning? About twelve hundred. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. Then you moved on to the Phantom. Could you tell us about this? Uh, yeah, um, my choice really. Um, when. The Lightning Force was uh, shutting up shop in Germany and the air defence role there being taken over by the F4. Um, it was a straight choice really b- between going to the F4 in the air defence role uh, or uh, to Binbrook. And I thought it was time for a change, so uh, I opted for the F4 and was lucky enough to get it. Went to uh, Coningsby to do the OCU there and then uh, down to Wadisham again on 56 Squadron. So was the Phantom this time your role? Was it all air to air? Yeah. All air to air. Yeah, it was a, it was intercept, um, but very much more capable than than the Lightning really. Um, good performance, especially with the Spay engines in it. Um, very good radar, uh, a pulse Doppler radar. Uh, lots of missiles, mm-hmm. um, four uh, AIM nines and uh, four AIM seven Sparrows. Can you uh, tell the difference in performance compared to the Lightning? Um, it probably wasn't quite such a pure aeroplane um, as the Lightning in terms of aerodynamics. The Lightning, uh, even though 60 degree sweep wing was was very predictable aeroplane, um, the F4 had a few little uh, vices in the hard wing version like adverse yaw. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, if you if you played the game with it, it was extremely powerful, extremely capable. Uh, the Spay engines, which we put into the F4, uh, very powerful at low level, just a bit temperamental at, uh, at high level, being a bypass engine. Yeah. Did it take some getting used to having a backseater? It took a bit of getting used to, but it was terrific. I enjoyed it because the F4 systems were not sensor-fused as you know them now, uh, and you really needed two people working in, in close harmony mm-hmm. to get the best out of the aeroplane. Yeah. So it was, it was very enjoyable from that point of view. How did the cockpit differ to the Lightning? Bigger. Uh, the Lightning was a very small office indeed. Um, the, uh, the front cockpit of the F4, you didn't have any controls for the radar. Uh, they were all in the back, but you did have a repeater so that you could see what, uh, what the guy in the, uh, the back was doing with the radar set. Um, and yes, just, just roomier, but still an analogue cockpit. Uh, and a HUD really only for weapon aiming, um, not for uh, the HUD as we know it. Yeah. 
So how many hours on F4 did you get and did you enjoy it? Um, between, the, between the RAF, I can't remember how many in the UK. I suppose I would have had about 800 uh, in the UK and another 400 in, uh, uh, in the States. So, talking about the States, something in 1979, something special happened. Could you tell us about this? Yeah, I was selected for the um, uh, RAF USAF uh, exchange scheme and uh, posted eventually to MacDill Air Force Base in Florida, punishment posting. Um, the, the, uh, the selection was a bit odd in that the Americans, um, one of the differences between the two philosophies is the Americans always regard aircraft type as being more important than aircraft role, whereas we believe the opposite. And when the F-4 in the UK was transferring from the GA role to the uh, AD role, the Americans wanted an F-4 pilot, but their F-4s were being used multi-role. So the RAF asked them whether they wanted a ground attack pilot, uh, non-Phantom qualified, or uh, a Phantom qualified AD guy. And that's what they went to, uh, and that's me. Yeah. So did you feel <coughs> welcome when you moved over? Yeah, very. Yeah, so first went to, uh, to Luke Air Force Base to do the IP upgrade there. Uh, there was a uh, British uh, exchange officer uh, on the uh, squadron that uh, was doing the IP upgrade, John Wormsley and uh, John and I had served together uh, on 56 previously so uh, he helped to uh, ease the transition. Mm -hmm. So what was the F4C like to fly? Uh, very nice, I mean it was a hard wing F4 uh, just like um, the, uh, uh, the M model that we've been flying, the FGR2, uh, so no leading edge slats. Um, J79 engines as opposed to the Spades, uh, which were axial flow, very much sort of like the Avon in the, in the Lightning. Mm -hmm. um, not as powerful, the F4C. Uh, most of them still full of dust from Vietnam, mm -hmm. um, but a uh, nice aeroplane. Yeah. So how much ground training did you have to have? Um, there was a ground school there. Um, Mostly for me, it was uh, familiarisation with the um, uh, with the USAF way of doing things, which most of my uh, fellows on the course already knew. Um, but most of them were converting to the aeroplane, many from uh, the uh, F-100. Mm -hmm. um, so really, it was the ground school was what you needed and tailored to you. Mm -hmm. So, what was the difference um, between European flying and UK flying to US flying? Um, Certainly where we started off, uh, very good weather in the, uh, in the US, mm -hmm. so uh, not a whole lot of, uh, of, of flying in dank weather, um, but very procedural. Mm -hmm. um, and the airspace, airspace was free, but the philosophy was do everything procedurally, and, yeah. and that was the hardest thing to get used to. Yeah. So how long did you spend at Luke? About four months. Four months. Yeah. Then you went on to MacDill to fly the F4D. Yes. What was the difference between that and the sea? Very little, uh, really. It had um, uh, some avionic uh, upgrades in as far as you could call them avionics, mm -hmm. um, but essentially it was the same aeroplane, mm -hmm. same engines, uh, same uh, missile capability, um, a few tweaks to the radar, but, um, but nothing yeah. significant. So how often would you fly? Um, most days. Yeah, just, just about every day on average. Um, the, the sortie cycle uh, in uh, USAF training is extremely long. So if you fly two sorties in a day, it's a long, long day. Yeah. 
Um, so m- mostly once, but we did get a lot of flying. Yeah. Do you have any memorable stories from Luke or McDill? Um, well, one that stands out in my mind was um, uh, acting as an instructor on the air to ground range uh, in the back seat with a, uh, a student in the front who um, rejoiced in the name of a Lieutenant or Lieutenant Stephen D. Funkhauser. Uh, we were doing 10 degree low angle bombing, um, which is a profile that is essentially quite um, hazardous in that for the latter part of the profile you are well outside the uh, seat limits because you're close to the ground and descending at quite a rate and it's very easy to get target fixation on uh, on that particular profile uh, and I don't think I was um, quite quick enough with the uh, the back stick and I'm told by the ranger who was sat watching us in the tower that we emptied most of the sand out of the uh, bombing circle on the recovery so uh, quite exciting enough. So overall, did you enjoy your time flying the American F-4s? Yes, I did. Yeah, it was it was great fun. MacDill was a lovely place. Socially, it was terrific. The guys were, were good. A lot of ex-Vietnam vets. Uh, my flight commander okay. uh, was a particularly celebrated one. Uh, and, um, yeah, a great experience. So in 1980, uh, something happened to you as well. You went on to fly the F-16. How did this come about? Well, when we were at Luke, we were very disappointed to uh, to find out that uh, MacDill was losing its uh, F-4Es to be swapped out with the D-models at um, Homestead Air Force Base down in Miami. The two units were replacement training units, what we'd know as uh, OCUs for the F-4. Um, we figured out uh, after we got there that the reason for this was that the um, wing at MacDill, the 56 TAC fighter wing, was the first one slated to uh, convert to the F-16 after the original wing at uh, Hill in Utah. Uh, so really from the time that I got there on the F-4, um, the prospect of the wing uh, converting was uppermost in everybody's minds really Uh, there were some people who by virtue of the time left to serve uh, were not going to qualify for the f-16 there were also a lot of um, people parachuted in from uh, from outside uh, to to join the wing but the long-term plan was that three of the four f4 squadrons at mcdill were going to convert and the uh, fourth one was going to remain as an f4 squadron until it finally folded Mm -hmm. so um, i set about persuading my wing commander that um, even though I was a bit of a liability, I was at least a known liability and, uh, and I really ought to uh, uh, convert to the F-16 and eventually I bought him enough beer uh, <laughs> and, uh, and there I was in. Brilliant. So how much ground school did you need? Um, everything really in the training set up there was in its infancy. We had no simulator. Um, the uh, ground school had been devised by uh, General Dynamics and was mostly computer-based, which was the first time we'd really operated with that. Uh, we did go out to Williams Air Force Base in Phoenix because a research setup there uh, had made a mock-up of an S-16 with a HUD and what have you, and that was really the closest we were going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, uh, again... Fortunately, I didn't have to learn USAF procedures and the local area at MacDill. It was only the aeroplane that I had to uh, get used to. Mm-hmm. So going back a bit, what were your first thoughts of the F-16? Awesome. <laughs> um, I think the, the, uh, the aeroplane at that time, 
Uh, it was still General Dynamics. It was the product of the light fighter fly-off between the YF-16 and the YF-17. Uh, the YF-17 uh, later, in a much larger version, became the uh, F-18. Um, but the F-16, which won the competition, entered service essentially pretty much like the YF-16 had been. Mm -hmm. And it was built around a revolutionary fly-by-wire system, uh, which allowed better performance through relaxed static stability. Um, I did talk to some fairly senior gentlemen at uh, GD who um, were of the opinion that if the company had known at the time what a massive order was going to be the product of it, they would never have uh, dared to come up with such a revolutionary system. But it was definitely the making of the aeroplane. Yeah. Wonderful. So what were your first thoughts of the side controller stick? Very easy to get used to. Um, we had um, block fives mostly when we first started out. Uh, the block one was a sort of uh, early production model. Um, but those and the block fives had a very solid uh, side controller stick. Uh, there was no movement in it at all. It was all force transducers to, uh, to tell the system what you wanted it to do. Yeah. And that was very twitchy and notchy, especially in roll and especially in... Uh, close formation but going back to the way that the aeroplane was brought into service because GD had used their own money for it um, they were able to liaise with the customer the user uh, and improve the aeroplane on a rolling basis without Pentagon interference mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the first feedbacks we uh, we gave them was hey this sticks too twitchy uh, we need something with just a bit of movement in it. Um, that, through normal military channels, would have taken a decade. Uh, they were back with it inside three weeks um, and, uh, and fitted the, uh, the moving side stick, and, and it was a transformation. So, Dim, could you tell us about your first trip in an F-16? Um, the trips were very close hold uh, early on, and only people who were selected for the course were uh, allowed to fly in the aeroplane at the time. So once I was selected, I had a, uh, a trip with one of the IPs who'd already uh, converted at Hill. Uh, I think we went off and did some DACT with uh, F4s, and it was just a revelation. Mm -hmm. um, the F4, particularly, most of my time had been spent in the back seat, where... You were sort of in a dimly lit greenhouse with a load of ironmongery between you and the outside world. Um, every time you found a hole to look through, they'd fill it, fill it with some instrument or other. Mm -hmm. um, and it was not a ter terribly nice work environment. Mm. Um, the F-16, you just sat on top of the world uh, in a, a one-piece canopy uh, and you could see everything. Uh, the aeroplane would do whatever you wanted yeah. it to do. Just awesome. So could you tell us what your role was uh, on the squad then? Okay, uh, the, the, as I said before, the, um, the wing was one of the um, F4 RTUs when I went there uh, and subsequently became the F16 RTU until they opened up Luke in that role as well. Uh, and we were basically taking people um, from uh, the front line on other aeroplanes, uh, from pilot training, uh, and also the odd guy that was coming to recheck out in the aeroplane again. Um, and we took them through a variety of courses to go out to the front line. Mm -hmm. We also trained our own IPs. Um, so we had a, a, a variety of courses that we were yeah. doing there. 
So did you practice much air to ground? Yeah, the uh, the airplane was bought even though it was really an air superiority fighter and too small to be a, a ground attack airplane, everybody thought. The way they got the money out of the budget was by uh, having a... Um, casting it uh, as an F-4 replacement. And the F-4's primary role in the USAF at the time uh, was uh, ground attack. Uh, and so that's what the F-16 had to persuade everybody it was uh, capable of doing. And it certainly was. Yeah. So how did you find the air-to-ground role? Uh, it was... Um, the avionics of the aeroplane just made it easy. In the, in the visual role, instead of fixed sight bombing, which you'd had in the, uh, the F-4, you had um, two main modes of release. Uh, one was uh, CCIP uh, and uh, constantly computing impact point, and the other one was CCRP, release point. Uh, and you either uh, pointed the aeroplane in the right direction uh, had a bomb fall line which you dragged through the target and when the pipper at the end of it got to the target you pickled it off mm. um, CCRP you just designated the target and then pulled and when the computer thought the time was right off came the bomb nice. uh, and even a novice could get uh, a 10 meter accuracy nice. uh, very early on so it was it was just a revelation yeah. Could you tell us some um, stories, if you have them, about DAC Team F-16? Yeah, we, being a, um, uh, a uh, training unit, we didn't really have a lot of um, uh, time to go and do extraneous stuff. But uh, we did a little bit. Um, we flew DACT against the F-4s of our own wing mm-hmm. um, until uh, they were phased out. Uh, we also went up to Langley and did some combat against the F-15, and it was the F-15 really that we uh, we mostly uh, uh, fought against. How did it fare against the F-15? The early F-16 had no radar missile. Okay, it only had a variety of um, AIM-9s, the uh, uh, Papa, uh, Juliet, and eventually the Lima, which had a head-on capability. Mm-hmm. Um, so the F-15 was at a great advantage. Um, at long range uh, and it had the AIM-7 missile the trick was by whatever nefarious means to live till the merge Mm -hmm. and we had a variety of tactics if you could do that then it was a knife fight in a telephone box and the F-15 we referred to as a flying tennis court because once you got the sight on it you couldn't get it off Um, and because of the aerodynamic particularly the, the uh, limiting uh, flight controls. Uh, so you got maximum G when you needed it, you got maximum AOA when you needed it, no chance of overstressing, um, and you could just throw the aeroplane around. Could it sustain a 9G t- uh, turn? Certainly could. The, uh, the, the pilot couldn't. But the aircraft could. But the aircraft could. Yeah. So could you describe the cockpit to us? Yes, it was, by today's standards, uh, Stone Age. Um, it was wonderful at the time. You sat in this 30-degree uh, reclined seat, uh, although uh, you did put your head to the vertical, so you flew with, with a slight head nod the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, your senses would, uh, would have been thrown out of kilter. Mm-hmm. Um, so the seat was very comfortable. The sitting position with a, with a side-stick controller was just, um, just what you needed, yeah. really. It, it was very easy to get, uh, get used to. We had an elbow rest there for uh, holding your uh, right arm steady against the um, side stick uh, mm. under high G, but really most of the time we didn't use it. Mm. Uh, in terms of instruments, it was still 
pretty much an analog cockpit, okay, mm -hmm. round dials. Um, the HUD was extremely good, uh, and in fact the HUD, because it was so much better than the head-down instruments, um, was the primary flight instrument display, mm -hmm. uh, unlike most of our airplanes where you use the HUD all the time, but when the chips are down, the primary display is the, is the round dials. Yeah. Um, it had a, a little radar set um, where the stick would normally be. So you looked straight down into the radar set, 90 degrees off, and it was uh, very easy to, to read. Computerized radar presentation. Um, and it had a stores management set, which was a sort of little uh, MFD, uh, but uh, hard keys only, unlike the touchscreens of today. Um, what else on the uh, on the cockpit? Uh, Hands-on throttle and stick. There were some radar controls um, on a panel, um, but mostly once you'd got that set up, you could fight the airplane with uh, with the switches on the throttle and stick, and that was pretty revolutionary. Yeah. So, could you tell us the difference between the A and the B model? Uh, the A model was single seat. Uh, B model was uh, two seater. Um, very similar. The because of the shape of the airplane, the um, view out of the back cockpit was not terrific um, but uh, you had a repeater um, where your radar scope was uh, you could make into a TV screen of the uh, the view out the front from the front cockpit so you could actually land looking at this television screen mm -hmm. uh, which showed the uh, the front cockpit HUD mm -hmm. um, it was yes it, it was uh, a trainer designed purely for that yeah so, how was it coming from like a twin-engine aircraft to a single-engine? Um, I don't think we ever noticed. I mean, the uh, the, the single-engine in the F-16 gave it more performance than the twin-engines in either of the other fighters I'd flown. Yeah. So, it was um, comfortably over 1.1, 1 to-1 uh, 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 paddle-weight ratio on takeoff. Uh, the subsequent engines were uprated, but by the same token, the uh, all-up mass of the airplane uh, mm -hmm. went ballistic as uh, as they added new kit to it. So essentially, the um, the performance of the uh, F-16 then in the early days was pretty much, I think, like it, it is now. So the engine was very reliable. Yes, it, it was a Pratt and Whitney 100 engine, um, and. It had powered the F-15, and the F-15 had a lot of trouble with it, I think, in mm. the early days. But um, they had two of them. Uh, and so, uh, with constant modification, um, the engine became extremely reliable, which, of course, we were very glad about. In fact, it was so reliable that until my successor, who'd come from Chivener, arrived uh, at MacDill, uh, they had no means of landing the airplane engine off. Really? Uh, it, well, they, they, they thought they could do it, but they had no procedure. Yeah. Uh, and they thought the engine was so reliable, quite rightly, um, that it wasn't worth hazarding, and therefore if the engine stopped, you jumped over the side. Yeah. Um, John arrived and, uh, and showed that with very little risk, uh, you could get an airplane back on the ground. Uh, and... Um, uh, and that procedure was adopted by them. Yeah. So did you ever conduct air-to-air refueling? Yes. Um, uh, AAR had been a part of uh, our life, really, um, since the lightning days. The lightning really needed it because uh, it had no fuel to uh, to endure. 
Um, DFOR did it to extend time on cap. Uh, going to the States, of course, we went from probe and drogue in UK to the uh, boom and receptacle, so that was a little bit to learn. And in fact, the first time I practiced that, I was in the back seat of an F4. Um, we did the uh, tanking trials on the KC-10 mm-hmm. um, for, for the F-16 from McDill. Uh, and really, it was, um, it was just a, a different technique to achieve the same end. Yeah. So how many aircraft were based in the squadron? I recall that on the squadron, a little over 20, I think, uh, I, I recall that we had about 90 aircraft on the wing uh, between the four squadrons. Mm-hmm. So a lot of ironmongery and, and very high priced. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the, um, the weapon loads that could carry? Yeah, um, mostly because we were a training unit, we dealt in the basics. Uh, and indeed, um, not that many weapons had been cleared uh, for the F-16 at that time. Mostly it was practice bombs, uh, and there were two types, BDU-33, which uh, represented a low-drag weapon, a slick bomb, uh, and the Mark 107, I think it was called, which um, uh, represented a high-drag bomb. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could also carry uh, a variety of uh, dumb weapons, uh, Mark 82s, 500-pounder, 83s, uh, 1,000-pounder, and... uh, Occasionally, although I never did it, Mark 84, which is a 2,000-pounder. Mm. Uh, we also had Maverick. Uh, air-to-air-wise, we just had the AIM-9s. Mm-hmm. So, was there a difference? The way oh, and the gun, sorry. 20mm uh, integral uh, Gatling gun, just fantastic. One. Just the one is all you need. <laughs> yeah. So, did there, um, was there any differences between the way the US Air Force conducted briefs and debriefs? Yes, um, again, uh, pretty procedural. Um, I shudder to recall now that when I went to my first lightning squadron, we started the brief half an hour before takeoff. So the brief was 10 minutes uh, or maybe eight if you had to go and get your kit on and then 20 minutes from, uh, from walk to, uh, to get airborne. Um, in the USAF, it was two hours. Uh, an hour of that was briefing. And again, remember, it was a, it was a student environment, so uh, everything had to be covered. Uh, and then, really, it was a fairly leisurely uh, stroll to get airborne, uh, and the airfield was big, so um, you had uh, a lot of taxiing to do, and then last chance checks. So, yes, it was, um, it, it was a different tempo altogether. Could you tell us how it compared to the Lightning and the Phantom? Um, Performance-wise... Um, very, very agile, much more agile than either of those two. Um, avionically, uh, a different generation, uh, just no comparison at all. Um, and the big thing about the F-16 really was the, uh, was the flight control computer system, which allowed you completely carefree handling, uh, which we'd practiced in the Lightning principally because we didn't have any instruments to tell us we were doing things that we shouldn't be. Uh, and the F-4 was, was a big aeroplane that you had to treat with, uh, with respect. Yeah. So do you have any memorable stories from your time on the F-16? Yeah, a lot. But I think the highlight of the, of the tour was um, uh, Operation uh, Coronet West. Um, the uh, US had been selling uh, F-16s from very early days to a lot of other nations. Uh, and of course, um, we were required to uh, to ferry them to wherever they were going. 
Uh, I put in my request to to do this very early on, but uh, I think the State Department uh, turned it down because they didn't want uh, a Brit flying a US airplane into a third nation. Mm. Uh, And um, uh, even when they started uh, delivering to the Israelis, and I pointed out to the wing commander that I was his only instructor who didn't require a visa to enter Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, cut no ice either. (laughs) So eventually, uh, time came for the... um, 8th TAC fighter wing at Kunsan in Korea, uh, a USAF uh, outfit to get their first uh, F-16s, uh, and uh, my name came out of the hat. So we picked, uh, picked up the aeroplanes out of um, Fort Worth, Carswell, uh, with about two and a half hours, I think three hours on the aeroplane. Uh, flew it to Hickam, uh, Hawaii. Uh, on the first leg, and that was about eight hours, I think, uh, with with air refueling support. Mm-hmm. Uh, the INS was so accurate that by the time I got to uh, Hawaii, I had to uh, manually ackle uh, the uh, target marker off the end of the runway because it was about 10 feet from where it should have been right. and was getting in my way. <laughs> um, from Hawaii, we went to uh, Guam, uh, to Anderson Air Force Base, which is very much in the news at the moment, uh, and from there to Kadena, uh, Okinawa, uh, and uh, and then a short hop into uh, into Korea. Wow. Well, there were uh, eight of us, I think, um, seven maybe, yes, seven, um, and uh, two of us noticed that the other uh, five were getting progressively less and less. Um, Uh, happy as we went along and uh, we realized the reason was that we were the only two that were going back to Florida uh, and the others were staying for a year in Korea. So So how many years did you stay in America and did you enjoy your time? Oh yeah, it's three and a half years total. Um, When I converted the F-16 part of the deal was that I extended my tour so that I would return the training service. Uh, My letter of complaint to Mrs. Thatcher got lost in the mail somewhere <laughs> so yes uh, and people were sticking pins in my effigy uh, those who timed their uh, uh, their posting to coincide with hopefully taking over from me mm-hmm. um, but uh, no it was it was marvelous Tim, could you tell us what happened when you returned to the UK yeah I'd uh, done a bit of groundwork I could see that uh, the Air Force in its wisdom were angling to uh, sling me back in the uh, QRA shed on the F4 uh, and I thought that with the uh, new experience I'd uh, had that uh, I'd be more value uh, and have more fun somewhere else so much as I had loved the F4 um, I asked them if I could uh, switch to a ground attack role and was fortunate enough to get a flight commander slot on uh, the Jaguar Force. So when did your training begin on the Jaguar? Soon as I came back really about a month after we came back July 82 uh, and I went up to Lossie for the uh, for the Jaguar course there. Mm-hmm. So, what are your initial thoughts of the Jaguar coming from the F sixteen? <sighs> Just totally different. I mean, the airframe was was um, uh, was quite primitive by uh, comparison. Uh, the avionics mostly, um, but uh, there were some uh, good bits of the Jaguar. We had a moving map which the F sixteen had never had, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it was a thoroughly likable aeroplane. Mm-hmm. So what squadrons were you based with and what was your role? Um, our role was uh, essentially um, ground attack, uh, close air support, a lot of battlefield air interdiction and air interdiction. It was a low-level role. 
Uh, I was on 54 Squadron at Coldershaw, a wonderful base uh, north of Norwich, now sadly no longer used. Uh, And our war deployment was to Tierstrup in Denmark, and we were uh, part of the uh, Comair Boltap, Baltic Air Command. Um, Our task really was to to provide some... uh, uh, offensive counter-air uh, against the uh, Warsaw Pact uh, airfields and um, radar installations uh, in order to give uh, the rest of the Air Force a bit, a bit of a breathing yeah. space. So what was that actually like to fly? Very nice. It was a lovely low-level platform. Uh, it was uh, extremely underpowered. Um, the uh, uh, adage that it re- relied heavily on the curvature of the earth to get airborne was no exaggeration it did especially when heavily loaded uh, it had um, very limited uh, maneuverability it was very hard to see uh, so our main tactic um, essentially was to run away and hide yeah did you ever fly any large exercises yes i did um, red flags uh, with the jaguar i had done one on the f-16 uh, and maple flag uh, and also we had uh, a lot of large exercises tactical fighter uh, meets and uh, bombing competitions and what have you in the UK So how did the, uh, the nations at these big exercises view the Jaguar? Um, I think they uh, they viewed it uh, as um, quite a formidable little aeroplane it was as I say very hard to see we flew very low much lower than the Americans normally uh, fly uh, for, for red flag we were down uh, at 100 feet and that really was as close to 100 feet as we could get um, it had a uh, by that time a reasonable um, radar warning receiver uh, and we had some good tactics and a little ECM pod and some chaff and flares uh, so we could give a good account of ourselves with um, uh, with the uh, the surface threats um, but really if we were spotted by an F-16 or an F-15 things got uh, quite hard yeah so how many hours did you get on the Jaguar about 1800 yeah what happened after you flew the Jaguar you went on to the Hawk Yes, I uh, I went to do my uh, obligatory uh, tour in MOD, which stretched itself into two tours in MOD, uh, and then I was lucky enough to uh, be posted a station commander at Valley, which is our advanced flying training base in Anglesey. Uh, I had only flown the Hawk about uh, 10 or 20 hours before, um, and so I had to go and uh, get really familiar with the aeroplane and also learn to be an instructor. So when did your RAF career finish? Um, my regular RAF career finished in 2003, um, but I had been fortunate enough to find out quite by accident because my last tour was in Saudi Arabia, uh, a bit uh, out of the way in terms of communications. Um, but I had uh, learned about this uh, wonderful scheme called full-time reserve service, which allowed you to go back and be a flight lieutenant again and try and prove you were a better one the second time round. Uh, and uh, really um, take your pick of of the uh, jobs that were available and fill a a frontline slot that could not be filled by anybody else or a slot from uh, the frontline is uh, is a more accurate uh, term that would be filled by somebody that they couldn't spare from the frontline. So I went to Leeming and I spent six and a half very happy years on the Hawk as a qualified pilot nav instructor teaching baby navs for the Tornado GR1 and the F3 to operate a two-place fast jet aeroplane. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. 
So do you still work in aviation currently? Um, loosely speaking, yes, through uh, two things that I do. One is that I'm the uh, Europe editor of a military simulation and training magazine. Um, so that helps me uh, get out from under the wife's feet um, and uh, keep in touch with uh, a lot of uh, old friends and make some new ones. Um, and also I've been involved for the last uh, six or seven years with a charity book um, called Out of the Blue. Uh, which uh, raises funds for uh, the RF Benevolent Fund and other charities. Um, so, again, that's kept me in touch with, uh, with aviation. Brilliant. So I'm going to ask you a few personal questions now, Dim. So yeah. Do you have any hobbies? Yeah. Uh, apart from those two things, uh, the uh, obligatory bit of music, uh, bit of cycling, bit of gardening, uh, and uh, woodwork. So. Do you ever get to air shows? Um... I have to confess that uh, I'm now no longer really an air show person, mostly because I don't particularly like crowds, not because I don't particularly like aeroplanes, uh, but also the work that I've done uh, for the magazine and through other uh, commitments has meant that I've, I've been to a few air shows and uh, mm. I, I don't have great ambitions to go to too many more. No. What's your favourite aircraft you've flown? I suppose it's got to be the F-16, although, you know... All of them have a place in my heart. Uh, The Lightning is the first one. The F4 is extremely capable. Uh, And the Jaguar, uh, as an an honest uh, and totally enjoyable aeroplane. And that had something to do with Coldershaw as a place and the Coldershaw wing uh, as an outfit. But it was just a a very happy place to be in a wonderful role. Yeah. Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown? Um, I've had a, a, a little go in a, a typhoon, uh, and uh, yes, I wish I'd been around long enough. I think they thought 61 was old <laughs> enough to be flying fast jets anyway, so uh, any volunteering for the typhoon force was likely to fall on deaf ears. Um, but yeah, a lovely aeroplane, and, uh, and uh, I would have loved to have flown it. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Mm, no. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.